go ahead and encourage you to grab one of those. Um, so we're going to look at that tonight. This is our third and final week on Wednesday nights of the Carols of Christmas. Have you been enjoying that? I'm glad you're back. We have talked through O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Silent Night. And tonight we get to hark the herald angels sing. Um, just to remind you, there is no Wednesday night service this upcoming, this next week. It is Christmas break. The office is closed next week, so there's nothing next Wednesday. The following Wednesday, January 4th, we will have a prayer night to begin the new year on a Wednesday night, just praying over this body, praying for it to move in new ways in 2017. So know that's coming. And then the following Wednesday, I believe that's the 11th, we will begin on Wednesday nights doing um, a study of how to understand the Bible. And so we're going to spend about three months talking through how do we approach Scripture to make sure we're understanding it rightly. So that is coming on Wednesday nights. Just some reminders of what's coming up on Sunday mornings. Or actually this weekend, Christmas Eve service, Sunday night, Sunday night, wrong day of the week, Saturday night, 5 o'clock, Christmas Eve service here. We'll sing carols, we'll have communion together, it'll be candlelight at the end as we close out with Silent Night like we've done many times in the past. I hope you'll come invite your neighbors and friends on Wednesday, or Wednesday, on Saturday night to the Christmas Eve service. Sunday morning, uh, by the way, there's no child care for Christmas Eve services for the whole family. And we do not mind children crying in church. Children are a blessing from the Lord. I said that before, so don't parents feel bad if your kids cry. They're a blessing. We don't mind them being in the room crying. Then Sunday morning, Christmas Day, there's no Sunday school. Just the one service at 1030. And it's, again, designed for the whole family. There's child care through age three. Otherwise, bring your kids with you. We're going to do something special up front for the kids during the service. I'm going to preach a little bit shorter. Don't worry. I'm going to try to get us out of here so you can get back to your Christmas lunches in time. So we're going to try to make it about an hour-long service as well, like Christmas Eve, just so you have time to get back to, to family. So that's all coming. And then um, January 1st, that's the first Sunday of the New Year, um, is New Year's Day. There's only the, only the worship that morning, no Bible study as well. I'm, we're going to talk about prayer that morning to get us ready for the New Year. So we'll have a prayer focus Sunday morning and Wednesday. Then I'll start the Gospel of John on the 8th. And Sunday the 8th. So all that is coming so you know where we're going over the next few weeks. But it is Christmas season. I'm excited about one more carol that we sing a lot to think about it tonight. So tonight we're thinking about Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So just some background of this particular chorus, this particular carol. It was written by Charles Wesley. Anybody familiar with Charles Wesley? Familiar with the Wesley brothers, the founders of the Methodist Church? Charles Wesley was the one who wrote the one that we've just sung a few minutes ago on Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Just some background on Charles. He was the 18th child of his parents. Yes, you heard right. He's the 18th child of his parents, um, Samuel and Susanna Wesley. He was born in 1707, extremely premature, and they literally had to wrap him in wool for weeks to keep him warm. He lay mostly still. They weren't sure he'd make it, and the providence of God, he did make it. But he was the 18th child to his parents. He was very smart. He got it from his mom. His mom, knew, his mom Susanna Wesley, knew Greek, Latin, and French. And she taught their children and taught them six hours every day at home to make sure they got a good education. So he got it from her, and he ended up carrying it on through school. He went to Westminster School. He ended up doing his master's at Oxford, and he was brilliant. He also was very holy, besides being brilliant. And so when he was in college, he formed a club that was called the Holy Club. And they had a lot of really strict rules to make sure they were walking in holiness. And he and his brother and the others who were so involved with this were so methodical with their discipline of devotions and holiness that the people were going to make fun of them. And they said, oh, you just do everything with method, so you're the Methodist. And so the Methodist was actually a, kind of a term to talk down on them to make fun of them for how methodical they were in their devotion to the Lord. And that's what actually stuck. And so the Methodist church goes back to originally that put down of their, how methodical they were in their holiness and pursuit of the Lord. So he was smart. He was holy. He also had a heart for the lost. If you're familiar with John Wesley, that's the name we usually think of in terms of the founding of Methodist Church. Charles was his brother. Charles and John together in 1735 came to the U.S. and they came to the state of, or the area of this now Georgia to be missionaries. And they had an awful experience. Like, no fruit, terrible experience. And he left, not just disillusioned, with ministry, he left disillusion with his faith, and he wrote in his journal as he's traveling on the boat back home to England. He said, "I went to America to convert the Indians, but who will convert me?" 
he was that disillusioned. But in God's providence, there was a group on the boat known as the Moravians. And oh my goodness, we need to talk about them sometime. The Moravians were a group of political refugees escaping persecution. And revival broke out when they ended up in Germany on the state of a guy named Nicholas Zinzendorf. That's a whole story for another, another day. But they became the first Protestant Christians post-Reformation to take the Great Commission seriously. And it wasn't the church that took the Great Commission seriously originally after the Protestant Reformation. It was about 200 years post-Reformation. The church sat on the gospel and didn't do much with it. But the Moravians were the first group that actually did something with the gospel and missions. And they were on that boat and they began to challenge Wesley. And they began to talk to him about the gospel. And they began to inspire him to read Martin Luther. And when he gets home from being on the boat, trapped with these Moravians for the, the weeks on that boat, he wrote in his journal, I have now found myself at peace with God and rejoice in hope of loving Christ. So he went to America as a missionary, lost, and got home from a failed attempt saved because of the faithful witness of the Moravians. And he says he, in his journal he rejoiced in the hope of loving Christ, and rejoice he did. He became very faithful at leading others to rejoice as well. He gets back to England, he begins to do outside preaching, became an itinerant evangelist, led a lot of evangelist crusades, you know, helped start churches. And again, the whole Methodist movement was born. Typically we look to John Wesley, his brother, but Charles was the brain behind it, a lot of the scholars say. He's the one who kind of helped make it all shape and turn into what it did. The other thing that he did to help others rejoice is he wrote hymns. He was a songwriter, a poet. And so two days after his conversion, he wrote a hymn about his own conversion experience. He most of us are doing good to like do a little blog or something about what the, what the Lord has taught us. He journaled. He, he, he actually made a poem, a song, a hymn to describe his encounter with Christ. He began to write more songs and more songs and more songs and more songs. And in the end, he wrote 8,989 hymns. 8,000. You heard me right. 8,989 hymns. And his hymns were very different than most of the hymns of the day. A lot of the hymns were very kind of slow, very reverent. His hymns were known for being more exuberant and more enthusiastic. And obviously not everyone liked that at the time. But that was what his songs were. We're known for the only person in history who's gotten close to writing as much as Charles Wesley was Isaac Watts. I referenced him in passing about two weeks ago. Um, but, but Wesley wrote ten times as many hymns as Isaac Watts ever wrote. His 8,989 hymns, there are things like, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, love divine, all loves excelling, Christ the Lord is risen today. Those were all things he did. And then another song, And Can It Be? If you average it out over his lifespan, he wrote 10 lines of songs per day for 50 years. He just constantly wrote hymns. And they said so much so that he would actually be riding on horseback, and he'd be writing hymns while riding on horseback. Well, that sounds really dangerous to me. You're to let go of the reins, and you're just kind of bumping along down the country roads in England, writing hymns. And supposedly he would be so inspired with song, he would actually get desperate if he didn't have paper and pen. He would like get off his horse and go knock on like random strangers' doors and be like, I need a paper and pen. I've got to write down what God just gave me. So he was like so much in the hymn writing mode, he would actually just knock on strangers' doors to try to get paper and pens so that he could continue to write more songs. And if you look at the history of Methodism in particular, some scholars suggest, and I haven't researched enough to prove it or not, but some scholars suggest that one reason Methodism grew was not so much the preaching, but the music. Because if you think about how we as people are wired by, by the Lord, we remember music more than remember outlines. You know, if I gave you on Sunday a five-point outline, I mean, you probably wouldn't even remember it by lunchtime, right? But we remember stories, and music are stories just put to song. And so I can sing songs I've heard ten years ago and don't remember, but I can't tell you an outline I heard in a class last week. That's just the way our brains work. And so you look at how the popular masses ended up following the Wesley brothers. Some scholars suggest that it wasn't so much West, John Wesley's teaching as much as it was Charles Wesley's music. This is the importance of good hymns and good praise and worship music like we have here because you're going to remember that and those songs that we find ourselves humming during the week are teaching us about the nature of God. That's the reason we're talking about some of these Christmas carols like this to help us in worship remember some of these things about the Lord that we're prone to forget if it was just me standing up with an outline week after week after week. Well, so I'll just say he had a big influence on that. Now, he did have a huge pet peeve, Charles Wesley, and that was he didn't want anyone to touch his songs once he wrote them. In fact, he wrote this in his journal, and I have to read it like the way I, I envision it because it has a little bit of a chip on the shoulder sounding. So excuse my interpretation of how I'm reading it. So, but here's what he wrote. He said, I desire that they would not attempt to mend the hymns, for they really are not able. None of them is able to mend either the sense or the words. 
And that's what he wrote. Like, that was his pet peeve. He did not want anyone touching his songs, quote, because I desired they would not attempt to mend the hymns, for they really are not able. None of them is able to mend the sense or the words. I'm sorry, the sense or the verse. And so with that in mind, we come to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which is a hymn that was greatly altered from what he wrote. And so the irony of this, perhaps what we best know today, is the Wesley song that's sung by more people. Some of these songs, and can it be, some, some generations know, some places know, but no Wesley song is perhaps known around the world as much as Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But that's not how he wrote the song. It was altered by the guy who did not want it to be altered. So the story of the song, in 1737, Charles Wesley was 30 years old, and he was writing hymns for Christmas. And so he penned a new hymn, and the hymn was called, Hark How All the Welkin Rings. Yeah, Hark How All the Welkin Rings was the name of the hymn. And his first verse was not, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to Newborn King. His first verse was, Hark How All the Welkin Rings, Glory to the King of Kings. So, again, the guy who did not want his song altered, that what we're singing is not what he wrote. That's what he wrote. So does anyone have any idea of what a welkin is? Heaven or sky. Oh, very good. Heaven or sky. Welkin means heavens or the sky. Hark how all the welkin rings. Glory to the king of kings. Yep. Welkin is a very old English term. Shakespeare used it in some of his writings. And when Shakespeare would use it, it would reference like sky and heavens. But literally, it means the vault of heaven, the vault of heaven. And so the image that Charles Wesley was trying to do in this song, Hark, Hark How All the Welkin Rings, Glory to the King of Kings, he was trying to give a picture of the heavens rejoicing at the birth of Christ. He's trying to give us an image of the whole heavens ringing with excitement at what Christ at Christ's coming and the imagery here is when heaven makes the announcement, not just an angel, but, angel, but when all the power of God and all the heavens and hills are making the announcement, the power of the entire king is revealed. So that's the image that apparently Charles Wesley had in mind, not just some angels singing, but literally the entirety of the heavens, the entirety and the power of the king on display, the vault of heaven opened because of what Christ is doing. So hark how all the welkin rings was popular in Wesley's church. Other churches began to pick it up, and so you had people across the area singing, not to the tune we sing it, it was a different tune time, but hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the king of kings. So who dared to change this lyric? Remember, he wrote and was very adamant, no one can dare touch my music. Well, there was a guy who got brave, or foolish, or whatever you want to think it is, and decided to modify hark how all the welkin rings, and that was a guy named George Whitfield. Any of you familiar with George Whitfield? He was a famous 18th century evangelist with an amazing ministry of outdoor preaching. And Wesley, Charles Wesley and Whitfield were somewhat friends, I should say. They went to school together, but they have very different theologies. One was more Reformed and one was more Arminian. And so they had some differing perspectives on, on theology in this. But apparently had a very different perspective on this particular song. And so George Whitfield decided to change the song. He took Hark How All the Welkin Rings, Glory to the King of Kings, and rewrote the first stanza, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the King of Kings, or Glory to the Newborn King. And he published it in 1753 without telling Wesley he had done that. He took Wesley's song, changed that to, there was two lines of it, and he made some other edits to it as well. He actually, Wesley had five stanzas, he cut two of them out on this. He added this refrain, because now after every verse you sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King at the end. He added that in, so he's taken the line that Wesley didn't want changed, not only changed it, but repeated it every stanza on this, and published it in 1753 in a collection of hymns. Wesley read it, and Wesley was incensed. He was like full of anger at what Whitfield had done to his sacred hymn here. And so the question I want you to begin with, I'm going to do, I want to do what we've done in the last few, few weeks, is we're going to mix in some discussion as we go. So I want you to get into some smaller groups here. And, and the first question I want you to think about together is this first, is on the back of your sheet here, is this. Charles Wesley originally wrote this song with the title and lyrics, Hark How All the Welkin Rings. George Whitfield changed it to Hark the Herald Angels Sing. What changes in the meaning of the song when those words are changed? Because it's not just a word change, there's actually a meaning change. The welkin ringing and the angel singing are two different meanings. So what changes in the meaning on that? And why do you think, besides the fact he didn't want his hymns messed with, why would Wesley be so upset about that change? So y'all good? Let's get into smaller groups, you know, five, six, whatever you want to. It can be three, it can be six or seven. But get into smaller groups and, and, and talk about that question for just a few minutes. And then we'll come back and talk more about that.
Okay, everybody had enough time to come up with an answer for that? Okay, so does, does anyone want to volunteer what you group, your group came up with of what changes when you go from the welkin ringing to the angels singing? Well, anyone want to, does someone in your group have a great answer? You want to volunteer someone in your group to tell everybody else. You can volunteer someone else in your group. <laughs> so I've seen two people volunteer in, the, in different groups here. Who wants to go? <laughs> y'all hear that? When Wesley wrote it, the pictures of the whole cosmos proclaiming that Christ has come. And when Whitfield changed it, it became more the angel announcing and more earthly. So so I I see some nods here. Anyone else want to add to that? Anyone else have insights you want to add? It seems better with angels. It seems better with angels. So the musician has spoken. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So they, there we go. William's on to something here. The text of the Bible never says that the angels sing this. And so, so you're welcome to follow along or just listen, but Luke chapter 2 would be the basis for this. So Luke chapter 2, it, it would be where Whitfield got the idea to change it from Hark How All the Welkin Rings to Hark How All the, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Which some of you saw today when I posted on Facebook a reminder about this. I misspelled Harold. I did H-A-R-O-L-D. And so Molly was kind of poking fun a little bit. There must have been an angel named Harold. And I, we got it fixed. <laughs> that was a friend of mine. Yeah, there you go. There was Harold the friend. Harold the angel there. So listen to Luke 2.13. This is going off of what, what William was saying back there. Luke 2.13. And suddenly there was with the angel, because remember the angels just announced things. There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, different people interpret it different ways. Wesley did not believe the heavenly host was the angels. He thought the angel made the announcement. Other beings were what was singing. <laughs> and, and, so, and so, you know, some people would look at things like, you go to Isaiah 6, and you see things like seraphim that have wings and they cover their face, like six wings cover their face. And some people think those are different beings than angels. Some just understand those to be certain types of angels. And so... You know, that, we're kind of splitting hairs on that, but it's, there is some theological debate going on with what that is. But so Wesley was, was convinced these weren't angels singing on that. But the other thing that does change, that I think is less nitpicky, that is of significance here in this, is if you look back in Luke 2.13, notice whom the praise is directed to. And something there was with the angel, multitude of the heavenly host, praising who? Praising God and saying glory to God. This is God the Father in the highest. Now, in the way that Whitfield changed it, heart the herald angels sing glory to who? The newborn king. So if you notice that the, the praise has been turned from God the Father to God the Son. And that in the little wording change in this. Does that matter? Well, yes. I mean, obviously we praise God. God is one. But it's important sometimes to notice those distinctions because it's really easy for us to confuse the roles. Yes, there's God is one, but God's Father, Son, and Spirit. And they have distinct roles in the Trinity. And so it's easy. And I mean, we all slip up and do it sometimes. You know, we'll be praying. I'll be like, Father, I think you died on the cross. Well, no, he didn't die on the cross. Well, Father, I think you're in my heart. Well, no, the Holy Spirit's in my heart. You know, it's easy for us to, to mix up terms just because we're so familiar. And God is one on this. And I think sometimes it's easy to do that. But here there has been an intentional change from praising God the Father to praising God the Son in this and the way the song redoes it. So that's just notice those changes happen and realize that those wording changes do change the meaning of the song. I see William with a question or a comment. Right. Yeah, so he, he no longer specified. He took away the focus, the king of kings, which is named for Christ, and, and just named it a newborn king. So, yeah, so there is some meaning changes in that. So not only did, did he change it in those ways, he also acts two stanzas. So turn to the back of your song sheet. Here's the two other stanzas that Wesley wrote that Whitfield decided deemed were not worthy to be put in. We're not sure why he asked them, but this, this, look at stanza one there on the, on the right side of the back of your song sheet. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. 
Now display thy saving power, ruin nature now restore. Now in mystic union join, thine to ours and ours to thine. And we don't have time to work through all the theological implications in that tonight, but you see where Wesley was going with some of these things. The woman's conquering sea, going back to Genesis. But it's interesting because then he personalized it, bruising us, the serpent's head. He's now taking the Christmas story and saying, now kill sin in my life. Look at the second stanza that Wesley included, the Whitfield Acts. Adam's likeness, the Lord of face, stamp thy image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, regain thee the life, the inner man. O to all thyself in part, formed in each believing heart. So lots of changes got made to the song from what Wesley wrote to how we now have it today. Again, Wesley was so mad he refused to sing the popularized revised version. He never once would utter the song in the way that we sing it today. He was so mad of what happened to that. In the 1900s, early 1900s, some editors tried to restore the song the way it was written. And so they tried to get back out into churches and hymnals and things. Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the king of kings. And churches scoffed and laughed. We're not singing it that way. And so despite the attempts in the early 1900s to bring it back the original way, it never came back in the popularity as we have it now with the modified form is what's stuck. Again, it's ironic because the guy who did not want anyone to touch his words, what he's remembered for is not what he even wrote. So now how do we get to the form we have it today? Well, if you think that story is complicated, the story of how we got the tune is complicated also. It's a pretty confusing song here in this. There, the, uh-huh. oh. oh, yeah, why would Charles Wesley be so upset about that change? Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for reminding me of that. And so basically it was getting at to, to the fact that the theology of the song changed. And that's, I think, at least, you know, he doesn't say why he's so upset. You know, obviously some of it is just human nature pride, I think. You know, you saw in his journal, he, no, no one can basically touch what he's done, you know. But I think some of it was a theological thing. Like he had a vision of what he wanted to convey to the heavens opening, and it got totally changed. Absolutely. You go into Wesleyan theology and, yeah, God gave this to me. Yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely. So I think all that would play in on that. So thanks for reminding me about that one. So, so yeah, so, so he never liked it that way. Now, the music we have, the tune itself was, that we sing was not written for this song. So, again, this is a convoluted story behind Heart the Herald Angels Sing. The tune was actually written by a guy by the name of Felix Mendelssohn. He was a German composer of the 1800s. He's the guy who wrote A Midsummer's Night Dream. If you're familiar with that, he's the guy who wrote a bunch of symphonies. He did not write the tune that we sing. He did not write that for this song. In fact, what he wrote that for was a tribute to Johannes Gutenberg. If you're familiar with Gutenberg, what is he known for? The, the printing press, Yeah. The, the Gutenbergs made movable-type printing presses in 1439. And he could print, in particular, he heard some say, the Bible. We go back to Gutenberg because he made printing accessible, easy to be done. And so God's Word could be printed and mass-produced and, and gotten out to the masses. And so 400 years later, to honor Gutenberg, Felix Mendelssohn was commissioned to write a song that would honor Gutenberg for his movable-type press so that the Bible got in the language of the people. And so, dun 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 was written to honor the printing press in Gutenberg. And it was published at the 400th anniversary. And the song, the team was popular, the song was simply called Mendelssohn, because it was so associated with the author. Well, so how did it end up being associated with Hark the Herald Angels Sing? So we have to get another person in the picture. So you have Wesley writing the song and Whitfield modifying it. You have Mendelssohn writing the music to honor Gutenberg. And you have another guy who comes with name, William Cummings. William Cummings, six years after Mendelssohn dies, he decides it'd be fun to wed these together. Let's take this tribute to Gutenberg and let's combine it with Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the revision of Wesley's response, and let's blend those together. And so in 1857, he publishes the lyrics, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, to the Mendelssohn tune to honor Gutenberg. And it's published in a Methodist hymnal in 1857, and it takes off. People love it. They love the familiar tune, the honor Gutenberg in the printing press, and they love the wedding of that with the song to honor Christ. And so the song begins to explode. And within 10 years, by 1867, it's one of the most well-known carols in the entire globe. 
and it comes from these four, these four people. So basically this story, this song, Wesley wrote about a Welkin announcement. Whitfield reinterpreted the text and rewrote it. Mendelssohn wrote a tribute to Gutenberg on the printing press. And Cummings decided to reinterpret that song to apply it to Christmas. And you put all four of those ideas together, and boom, you got Heart the Herald Angels Sing, and we're still singing it today. One author summarized it great, and this, you know, I, I can't do better than what this guy wrote. He said, the road to acceptance and fame for this Christmas carol, this Christmas carol began when a misquoted verse of scripture from Whitfield was combined with a melody from Cummings written to honor the man who first printed the Bible, Gutenberg. And that's really what happened. It took all these ideas together to come to where we have today. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So that's the story behind this song. Now, what about the song itself? We're not going to get into the extra stanzas. We don't have time to go through these stanzas that <coughs> originally in but got axed by Whitfield. But let's go through the three stanzas <coughs> that are part of what we know and we typically sing. So stanza one, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, Peace on Earth and Mercy Mild, God and Sinners Reconciled. Joyfully all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Heart the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So where does this come from? It comes from Luke chapter 2. The whole song is based on interpretations of Luke chapter 2. So let me just read for you the, the, what the Bible says about what happened, and then we'll compare that to what the song says happened. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When they just went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see the things that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So that's where Heart the Herald Angels Sing is based on in the Scripture. So several things first before we talk about it. First, what are angels? We've got to start there because that's what this song is about. And there is a good bit of confusion in our culture about what angels are. And so I just, if you want to learn about angels, please don't go to Christian books. We're going to pick up a book on angels. It's probably not going to be very helpful. Don't go to what Walmart has on it. Talk to me. I'll get you some resources on that. But what are, what are angels? Angels are created spiritual beings who have intelligence and who can make moral judgments, but they do not have bodies. So they are created beings. They are spiritual beings, but they're created beings who have intelligence and who can make judgments, moral judgments, but they do not have bodies. Angels were created during the six days of creation. They are not eternal. They've not always existed. They came out. We don't know when in the six days of creation, but there was nothing. There was just God. God begins speaking things into being. He creates a man, and somewhere in this process, before God rests and stops creating new things out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, the angels were made. And so angels are spiritual beings. God made two types of beings that can make moral judgments. You know, there's lots of beings that are alive. There's whales, and there's dolphins, and donkeys, and snakes. There's things that are alive, but there's two things God made that can make moral judgments of superior intelligence. People and angels. These are the only two parts of God's creation that can... I guess animals can think, but they can make moral judgments and have high intelligence. We see that the, that the angels can make moral judgments because some fell. There's a rebellion. Demons are just fallen angels. And so angels can make decisions. They had angels choose to rebel against God, and those are now demons. But the important thing in this, another thing let me just say, though they do not have bodies, they're limited to one place at a time. Angels, one angel can't be everywhere. They are limited to a place, but they can go between heaven and earth. So there could be angels in this room. There could be angels sitting on your car right now. But it can't be in this room and on your car and in your house at the same time. You know, okay? So angels, angels are, are, are limited like we are to one place in time. But here's what's important. God made angels to serve him. Not, not to be, for us to get obsessed with them. They are servants of God. Angels never draw attention to themselves. Rather, they always are honoring God. And so when an angel appears, you don't see them saying, look at me. They're always like, glory to God. Glory to God. So an angel's job is to point attention away from the angel to, do, to, to point people to God or to do what God has sent them to do. So angels are never to be worshipped or adored. And I think that's where our culture gets a little bit obsessed and gets in some dangerous places. Angels are never worshipped or adored. They are to point us to worship God. But angels can also be an example to us because of their faithfulness to God and because of their worship of God. Again, look at what the angel said in verse 13 of Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
So here is the question we discussed. It may be a little strange question, but it's question two on our sheet. Notice how the angels praise God for the birth of Christ. What does that teach us about what our attitude should be regarding Christ? So the angels praise God. Notice how they respond to the birth of Christ. What does that teach us? Again, the way angels, and I don't, when I say angels are an example for us, I'm not saying we should get obsessed with them or anything, but just simply that they obey God and they worship God. So how does that instruct us to us as the other beings that God created that are spiritual beings? So get back into your groups for just a minute and think of how the angels' faithfulness to praise God, what does that show us about what our attitude should be regarding Christ? Does that make sense? Strange question, but let's have at it for a minute. Okay, everybody having a time on that question? Who wants to volunteer someone in your group to tell us? What do we learn? How do the angels set an example for us and our attitude towards Christ? I heard some good things coming from a few groups up front. But who wants to tell us what you came up with on this question? Any volunteers? Yeah, go for it, Fear not. Right. And say fear not, and we have a tendency to not do that. Right. And even so, an angel, even being more powerful than us, will mm. would uh, would have the ability to do that. And like they do it, I guess. Yeah. But uh, they they choose. Everybody hear that? That, that? You think if when an angel appears, I mean, there's obviously beauty. There's obviously a sense of power to where people tremble. They would have every reason to to point to themselves, but they don't because they know they've seen Christ for who He is, and they point people to him and i mean how much more so for us in our fallen state we want people to think how great we are and it's easy to, to want to lift up self and it's no that it's christ it's all about god it's not about us yeah that's absolutely right what else The unending energy, keep praising him, and yet how it makes us depend on him. Yeah. 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 We're headed that way, exactly. It's that we will see God like they see God one time with unveiled faces. Good point. What else did I come up with? Oh, you just got volunteered. <laughs> okay. Carmen's going to be your spokesperson. <laughs> Everybody hear that? The angels are, are praising God related to the birth of Christ and how that should be ongoing in us as well. We should never grow tired of it. And that, that's the reason I love these weeks of Advent. It kind of helps refocus us. But we should be thinking about the fact that Emmanuel, God with us, is not just something we think about for these four weeks. We should be thinking about this in April. We should be thinking about this in June. We should be thinking about this during football season. Like This is like, you know, it should be on our hearts all throughout the year. That's, that is a great point on that. One author said this, that the angels show us a reverence and an admiration that we in our fallen state struggle to display and maintain. We have a reverence and admiration that we in our fallen state struggle to display and maintain. So yeah, everything else said are reasons why they set an example for us. And we don't worship them, but rather we look to them and we can marvel at what God has done and we rejoice and join them in praise. So let's talk through these three stanzas briefly tonight and what we see. Because I see as I look at this and study it, there's a main idea to each stanza. Each of these three stanzas has a different theme. So stanza one... It's really a call to come to Christ. And not just a call to us, but a call to the nations. Again, look back at stanza one. Hark. Let me just pause right there. Does anyone know what hark means? Listen up. Yeah. Yes, we should try this with our kids sometime, right? So you know, like, hark, dinner is ready. You know, I think we miss it sometimes because we don't use that word in our language. But hark means listen, pay attention, you know, you tune in, so to speak. So, so hark, what are we listening to? The herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. 
God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join, the nations join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. So this begins with hark. This an invitation to listen to the angels praise and say glory to the newborn king. It was also an invitation to listen to what God has done. And what has he done? The last line of that first stanza, God and sinners reconciled. If we're going to rejoice, that is a really good thing to rejoice. That the separation between us and God has been removed. That there's been restoration. That there, we can be restored to him. I mean, you think about you and your spouse, you and a friend. If you have an argument and there's strife and there's conflict. When you have reconciliation, wrongs, someone forgives the other person. And the relationship is restored to a right, like new condition. That's the imagery here of God and sinners are reconciled. And the beautiful text for that is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And listen as I read from 2 Corinthians 5. It is a beautiful, beautiful text related to reconciliation and just what we see here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a lot in here. And maybe Lord willing to preach on that since I haven't said that yet tonight. So maybe this will come one day soon. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We need encouragement in the gospel, friends. 2 Corinthians 5 is a good place to turn of what God has done for us. That we are reconciled. And why, is it, why do we need reconciling? Because we've offended God. It's, it's not that we need God to come to our terms. We're not the ones offended. God in his holiness is the one who's offended. And so we are now separated from him because of our sin. And so we need to be reconciled. And when we couldn't get reconciled on our own, God came to us, took on our sins so that we might be reconciled to him. But notice the scope of all this. In Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, it uses the words all. And so it's a reminder to us this is for all the nations. This is not a message for people just in Montgomery or just people in our church. This is for the whole world. This is a John 3, 16, that God so loved the whole world that God has the entirety of the world in view and desiring all the nations to be reconciled to him. And so I love verse, what stanza 1 says, Joyfully, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. It's a reminder to nations. Hark, listen nations. Listen China. Listen India. Listen people groups across wherever. Listen. Join in us in proclaiming that Christ has come. Join us in believing that God and sinners can be reconciled. It's the imagery ultimately of Revelation 7-9. The beautiful picture of the end of the age when around God's throne there are people from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping the Lord. And friends, I think some people are going to be in shock when they get to heaven and realize how diverse it is. It's not going to look like Montgomery, Alabama. It's not going to be all one ethnic group. It's going to be people from literally every ethnic group on the planet around God's throne, worshiping him for all eternity. All races, all ethnic groups, all language groups are around him worshiping. And so I love stanza one of Heart the Herald Angels theme because, Hark, listen up. God and sinners are reconciling. Guess what? Nations join us in this joyful praise. This is an invitation for the nations to come. Diversity coming together in proclamation of the gospel. So stanza one is ultimately a call to come to the gospel, as I understand it. Stanza two now becomes a stanza about Jesus' nature and how this happens. So look back at stanza two. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come. Offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. So take just a minute now in your groups, and I want you to discuss what do you learn about the nature of Jesus, and what do you learn about Jesus from this one stanza? Because this is a rich stanza in terms of a theology of Christ, what we would call a Christology. 
So take a few minutes around your group, and it's questions, if you want on your, on your sheet, on the back, question three. Stanza two has amazing descriptions about Jesus. What do we learn about Jesus and his nature from stanza two? So take a minute and talk about that. Okay, everyone had enough time to at least think through some of the things you see there in, in stanza two about what do we learn about Jesus' nature? So who, who, who wants to volunteer? Anyone want to share with us? Carmen's pointed some of y'all right over here. <laughs> who wants to volunteer? What are some of the things you've noticed about Christ in here? Highest heaven adorer. What did you notice about that? Yeah. Yeah. He's pleased by God as well. Yeah. So, so, he, so he's all of heaven is pleased with what he's doing. Yet he came in humble state. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Absolutely. We did wonder what it what you thought it meant by late and kind the whole time. Did you pick up on that one? Or just late in the process of being man here on earth? Right. I understand late in time, and again, I'm not sure what Leslie was saying. This. I understand. I've always understood in terms of the fullness of time, kind of that thing, and the fullness when the fullness of time had come. That late in time, if you think about particularly for at Advent, the longings of the Old Testament. The, the, the 400 silent years, the longings of when's the Messiah coming. They've been waiting a long time, especially when you realize, go back to the law, and for thousands of years we've been trying to, to please Lord and do sacrifice, and we realize how short that comes, but one's coming will be the ultimate sacrifice. Late in time, in the fullness of time, after this long way, the Messiah has finally come in world history. That's my, that's my understanding of that, yeah. And now God says, now we have Emmanuel God with us. Absolutely, yeah. And did you, did you hear the phrase that, that, that he was using, permanent? Christ, and we've talked about this, but Christ did not begin at Christmas. God is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit. He's eternally trying God, which corrects some modern heresies that float around in Christian teaching that God made the world because he was lonely. No! God was fully content, complete, perfectly loving, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect community, perfect unity of the Godhead. Christ was always there. God didn't make us because he was lonely. God was content as God. He chose to make this world to show his glory. So the whole, that Christ was, a, I think you said, a permanent fixture throughout all of eternity. It's a great description. I hope I'm not misquoting you, but a great description of the fact that, yes, he's eternal. And behold in time, in the fullness of time, late in time, he, he did come in the right time. So what's y'all knows about the nature of Christ in the stands? It's a rich one. I'll spring up a virgin's womb, yeah. Yeah, so, through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. Yes, so, so as Dale was pointing out that Christ did not have an earthly father biologically on this. And this is in, in the virgin, we talk about the virgin birth. The, the more precise term is the virgin conception in this. The virgin conception, you know what I mean when we say virgin birth, but virgin conception is more precise. The virgin conception is incredibly important because he has to be both fully God and fully man. And, and friends, realize this. We are, and, and this is, a, get a little theology, philosophy here. We are, not, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And that's a really big difference. And if you want to wrestle that, we can go have coffee and we'll kind of wrestle through that theology of that. But that's a big distinction. We're, we're not, God doesn't look at us as sinners because we've sinned. Rather, we're sinning because we are born sinners. We have inherited from Adam, sometimes we call it an Adamic, Adam, I see, Adamic nature from Adam. And so we come out as sinners born that way. Christ was born holy. Go back to Luke, Luke 135. How is it phrased in here? The angel answered, Our Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. If there is no virgin conception, there is no holiness of Jesus there. And so he is fully God, fully man, no sin nature. He is born 
sin-free, with no sin nature, because he is the incarnate deity. Incarnate, just he's now got received a body in that. So, so yeah, so, so the virgin conception is incredibly important for the nature of who Jesus is. Any, what else do you see in this? Anything else that you've noticed that stood out about the nature of Christ in stanza two? Again, this is a rich stanza. Anything else you talked about that you want to throw out there? You hit a lot of those on that. You know, there's the concept of Emmanuel, God with us. I'm not going to go back through that because we've already talked about that two weeks ago. No, come, come, Emmanuel. I, and I love this one as well. I already mentioned that a little bit. Please is man with men to dwell. The whole idea that, that, that heaven was pleased, but I think alluding this as well, is that, that Jesus was pleased to do this. Again, I, I've, I've used this phrase in the last several weeks, but Jesus didn't begrudgingly come. He wasn't up in heaven being like, oh, I wish there was a better way to do this. You know, yeah, this is not like a, you know, kind of we do, well, I don't really want to go to the doctor, but I guess I'll have to. I don't want to go get that shot, but I need it. Or I don't want to go there, but whatever. You know, there's no begrudging I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do, but I don't want to do it. This is the joy of heaven that Christ is coming with joy because this is the plan that he has developed before time began. Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he came as a baby in a manger. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He was the only one who could be the perfect sacrifice, so he willingly came. Absolutely on that. So he obeyed the Father. No, absolutely. So, the, the, again, the imagery of Sansa 2. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. I mean, what an image is that veiled in flesh that God has seen. When Christ came, we saw God in human flesh. Hail the incarnate deity, God in human body. Pleases man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And again, we could do a lot more on some of those. Yes? Yeah. 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 Yeah, you're right. If there's no virgin birth, we do not have a perfect sacrifice to cover our sins. I mean, it's not like a, the virgin birth is not a tri- virgin conception, not a trivial doctrine. And we're going to see this more again. This is where I'm so excited about Wednesday nights this, in 2017 as we get into it. How to understand the Bible, we get attributes of God. These are not, you know, I think we see theology sometimes and we think that's for the academic spheres. Friends, we all do theology every day. How we talk to our friends, how we talk to the cashier at Walmart reflects the theology in our heart. We're all doing theology. It's a question are we doing it right? And so theology is not just an academic thing. It affects our worship. It affects our understanding of God. And so we're going to have fun wrestling with all that. And, and if, you, if you want to talk about Bible translation, I'll go take you to a cup of coffee. If any of you want to learn about different types of Bible translation, we'll have a fun. We'll see if I get brave and do that on a Wednesday sometime down the road. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready for that one yet. But if you want to talk Bible translation, take, we'll go get coffee and talk about it. So, Okay, stanza three. So what we've kind of seen so far, stanza one is kind of the call to the nations to come and to be joyful in Christ and to be reconciled to the Lord. Stanza two was the nature of Jesus. And stanza three then is going to be Christ's mission. So you've seen the call to come. We see the, in stanza two, we see his nature. Now we're going to see Jesus' mission here in stanza three. So listen to stanza three. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. This is Jesus' mission. Notice the titles here. That he's called the son of righteousness. So he's got healing in his wings. This is Malachi 4.2. Um, we referenced this when we did our Come O Coming Manual two weeks ago. So I'm not going to go back through Malachi 4.2. But this is in the longings of the Messiah to come. And when the Messiah comes, he's going to drive out darkness. He's... Light. He's the Son, the S-U-N here. Yes, he's the Son of God, S-O-N, the Son here. He's, he's the light, righteous light that brings judgment on evildoers and brings hope for those who, are, who believe in him. This is, and the whole, whole idea of healing in his wings, 
you know, we have a hard time with that imagery. I hear wings, and I think of chickens. Quack, quack, quack. You know, the imagery here of wings, like if you see sometimes a sunset, and you see the rays of the sun spreading out, that's the imagery that, that was trying to be conveyed here. The wings were the, the spreading out of those rays of the sun, and everything under the sunlight is covered by it. That's kind of imagery of the healing in his wings. Everything that comes under the sun experiences the life he brings is the imagery that's being done here. The title, Prince of Peace, this comes from Isaiah 9, 6. Again, we've already looked at Isaiah 9 on Sunday morning and on a Wednesday night, so I'm not going to go back through Isaiah 9, 6, but that is where the title, Prince of Peace, comes, comes from in this. But again, notice what, the, what he's come to do. Mild he lays his glory by. Why? Born, not to, born to stay a baby in the manger, but born that man no more may die. Born why? To raise the sons of earth, and born why? To give them second birth. These are all pictures of salvation. Born that no more to die. This is, again, the already not yet tension. That, and you're probably tired of me hearing us talk about that this Advent. So, you know, we're almost done with Advent season. So, but already not yet. Because of what Christ has done, we no longer face a spiritual death. And we can rejoice in that. But the day is coming when we see Christ face to face and He creates a new heaven and new earth. But there's no more physical death. So we already experience not dying spiritually. And then after we meet Jesus face to face, there's no more physical death and we get our resurrection body. So this is kind of that already not yet tension going on right here. To raise the sons of earth, that's again the imagery of giving us new life. Because Christ is raised from the dead, we're raised to walk in newness of life with Him. And the whole thing of born to give them second birth, this is what we typically talk about. Are you born again? John 3, the text of Nicodemus, and being born again. That's where all this comes from. And these are glorious things that, that God has done for us. They're free to us, but lest we forget, they're not free. They're costly. So he, he reminds us, mild he, Jesus, lays his glory by. He lays his glory by. I want you to hear this. This comes from Philippians chapter 2. It's where we get the idea of, of him laying his glory by. So in Philippians chapter 2, just listen to what, to what Paul writes to the Church of Philippi. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. So he's addressing believers here. Verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Will each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others? So he's making a pretty strong case to do this. Why? Verse 5, here's the answer. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now here's an example of Christ for us. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So in calling us to walk in humility, he shows the example of Christ. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God. Don't let that phrase trip you up there. Form of God, it just means he was God. Jesus is fully God. But it's not a thing to be grasped. It doesn't mean that he, though he was God, he didn't grasp it. We have a tendency in life to, when we get blessings, we cling to them, Right? Is mine, my house, my blessings, my family, my kid. You know, we cling to things. Jesus is God. He's the supreme ruler of all. He deserves worship, and yet he let go of what he deserves so that he might come as a baby and come to rescue mankind. And so just he didn't grasp, he didn't hold on to the privileges that were due to him as being God. Verse 7 tells us here that he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. This is again, he, he did not quit being God when he was a baby major. He's still fully God, but he's fully God, fully man. It's that imagery of him humbling himself, coming as a man. And he came on a mission. Again, he didn't come to be the baby in the manger. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so there's the imagery of Philippians 2. So what do we see in Hark? The Herald Angels see Stanza 3. Let's kind of work, think backwards through it. Stanza 3, Hark, listen. Jesus came on a mission. To seek and save the lost. Jesus humbled himself. He laid aside his glory so that we could have second birth. Hark, listen, he came that we might have second birth. Not because we're great, but because we're so desperately needy. Stanza 2, as we work backwards. Hark, listen, for this to happen, he had to be born of a virgin. He had to be fully God and fully man. He had to be born sinless. And so because he did come to do this, to, to give us the opportunity to have second birth, because he then came as a virgin as we possible, hark, stanza 1, listen, God and sinners can now be reconciled. 
And so when I look at this, it's almost like a reverse progression in some ways. Here's what Christ came to do, stanza three. Stanza two, it took him coming as a virgin, fully God, fully man. And now because he did that stanza one, nations listen up. You can be reconciled if you will believe in Christ. So what difference does Heart the Herald Angels sing make? What difference does the theology of this song make? I see two applications for us in this. The first one we've already addressed, and that's worship. I mean, ultimately, we're called to worship the Lord. This is cause to rejoice that we can be reconciled to God. And like the angels, those of us who are far off can now be brought near and can rejoice with them. And y'all realize this. The angels worship, but they can't experience what we've experienced. They can only watch. Because the fallen angels have never given a chance to repent. The angels who have not fallen, who are still angels, they can only wonder at how God would take this mess of humanity of people who hate God, and yet he loves them and draws them to himself and gives them new life in Christ and gives them second birth. The angels marvel at these things. They, 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 they worship because they see it. Friends, we don't just see it. We've experienced it. And how much more so than the angels should worship because not just that we see it, we have experienced new life in Christ. So we worship. But the second application for us, I believe, is that we announce the message as well. Because this is what stands one is, Joyfully all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. How are the nations going to hear that Christ has come? Us. God doesn't, have, doesn't set a plan B. It's like, well, if they don't go, I'll write it in the clouds. He sent us, again, 2 Corinthians 5, God and sinners reconciled. He's reconciled himself, 2 Corinthians 5, and he's made, given us the ministry of reconciliation. We are saved to be ministered reconciliation. His ambassadors, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, which I hope we get to preach on that one sometime also. In 2 Corinthians 5. Well, maybe we'll get to those eventually. But 2 Peter, or 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, all the stuff he's done for us, chosen race, royal priest, a holy nation, people for God's own possession. We like that part, but it doesn't stop there. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. We were made to herald, to proclaim. God made us a holy nation, a royal people, royal priesthood, all these things so that we might herald his good news. And so we don't have time to discuss it tonight, but I, I want to give you a, challenge, a question challenge to think about at the end here on, on point four. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God has reconciled us to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Again, we can't separate those. We are now God's ambassadors. Friends, if you're in Christ, you're an ambassador for him. So, first part of the question, what are ways we can be God's ambassadors this Christmas season and share and announce the hope of Christ to others? The angels got to come and herald that Christ had been born to announce it. But we are now called to announce that. Christmas is a time that non-believers at least are taking notice of things that can give us bridges to the gospel. So what are some creative ways that over the next week or two, you and your family or you and your friends can announce the message of Christ to hurting people all around us? And if you think of some ways you want to do it, the second part of that question is, whom can we join you in praying for? If there's someone in your family you're going to see this weekend or someone, one of your friends, you're like, you need to reach out to that neighbor this Christmas season. And you want us to be praying for them, let us know or ask someone in your group to pray for them so that over the next few days you have prayer covering on that. And I hope over Christmas you will seize the opportunity to herald, to proclaim the news that God and sinners can be reconciled. So I hope that gives you some fresh eyes on the Heart of the Herald Angels Sing. So I can, get our, can I get you to come play it one more time? We want to sing Heart of the Herald Angels Sing one more time. With all these things in view of what we're singing, that Christ has come, that we might be reconciled to him, that he had to be a virgin born for it to happen, and he did it by humbling himself and becoming obedient with joy to do what God the Father had sent him to do. So would you stand and we're going to close out by singing, Heart the Herald Angels Sing. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. In Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. 